The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you this crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We got 40 minutes on the devil throwing people in prison, all right? So I need you. I need you this morning. It's so good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad to be with you. Um, is it all right if I just move these real quick? Is that okay? I kind of want to just see, see the folks on the sides. Uh, grab a Bible, Revelation chapter 2. You can do that uh, while, we're, while we're there. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be hanging out this morning. I'm going to pray for us. And then we'll, uh, that'll be good enough. Sorry, Brent and Sebastian. Can we just thank our worship team for leading us? Man, I love to get to sing about the goodness of God, that he will come and make all things new again. It's a promise we're going to hold to. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, you have in your word and in your scriptures words of comfort and words of conviction. And yet, both are gifts of love from you. And so we receive all of it. And so I pray today that whichever one we need, some in the room, we need to hear of your balming, soothing, peace-filled presence, Lord. And I pray that you would be faithful to give that and to speak that. Yet others of us, we know, even though we might not want it, what we need is the words of the one who has the double-edged sword. And so I pray whatever it is that we need, you would be faithful to do what you have done for so long, which is take your word, put it into our hearts such that we are changed. Lord, we need you and we love you. We pray all these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, Amen. Well, we are uh, continuing our series this morning, looking at the first three chapters of Revelation. And this, in the first three chapters, we have seven letters from the Apostle John to seven churches that make up seven ancient cities in ancient, uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. And so just a way of recap, John has this vision from the Lord while he's on the island of Patmos, where Jesus says, I'm going to dictate to you these seven letters, and you're going to send them to these seven churches in these seven cities. You can see these cities on the map behind me. And last week, we looked at the first letter, which was to the church in the city of Ephesus. And what we saw is that though they were a church full of good deeds and good doctrine, though they were a church doing all of the right religious things, believing all of the right teachings about Jesus, that yet in the midst of that, they had abandoned their love for him. And we saw this as a warning to all of us that the danger is as our faith grows old, our hearts will grow or can grow cold. 
And so we ask this question of ourselves as we end it, have we abandoned, have we forsaken our love for Christ? And this week, we're going to turn our attention to the next letter, which was written to the church in the city of Smyrna. So Smyrna, as you can see on the map, is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's a coastal town right on the Aegean Sea. And it's actually, it's just a fun fact, the only city of these seven ancient cities that is still there today. So you can actually go visit it. It's the modern day city known as Izmir. It's actually the third largest city in modern day Turkey. It looks like this with two of my favorite skyscrapers I've ever seen in the world. So hopefully Revelation 2, that's where we're going today. He's writing a letter to the church in Smyrna. Let's pick it up in verse 8. We're just going to dive right in because we've got a whole host of things to cover. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. You there? You good? Sweet. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. All right, so just like in the opening letter to Ephesus, this letter to Smyrna opens with a reference back to part of the description of Jesus in chapter one. It says, the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, this phrase actually has a sort of double meaning. So the first meaning is about Jesus, right? That he's the one who died and rose again on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. We'll get to that at the end today. But it's also sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference about the city of Smyrna itself. You see, although the city of Smyrna at the time of the writing, which is around 93 or 94 AD, was a prominent coastal city, about 700 years earlier, it had actually faced destruction. So around 600 BC, the city of Smyrna was destroyed by a group of people known as the Lydians. It was completely wiped out, and it sat in ruins for about 300 years until Rome came in and said, hey, we'll help you rebuild. Now, why does that matter for our purposes today? Well, because Rome played such a prominent, important role in Smyrna being rebuilt as a city that Smyrna proved to be incredibly loyal allies to the empire. It was because of the help of Rome, the city who was dead and now lived. Ancient historians used to refer to it as the Phoenix City. It was the city that, the city that had risen from the ashes solely because of the help of Rome. And so because they were so indebted to Rome, that meant they were loyal to Rome. And because they were loyal to Rome, that meant they practiced the worship of the Roman emperor. This was such a prominent part of their tradition. In fact, a few decades before the writing of this letter, Smyrna had won the right over every other city in Asia Minor to build an emperor to Tiberius Caesar, who was the one who was reigning at the time of Jesus. So Smyrna has this deep-rooted allegiance to Rome, and this is incredibly problematic for the church in the city because emperor worship is not optional. It's not like, hey, you can choose whether you want to worship him or not. It was required because emperor worship was both religious and political. And so if you refuse to worship Caesar, you are not just making a religious stance, you were also making a political stance. You were saying, I'm not on the side of Rome. And Rome, as an empire, could not handle people not being on their side. So to not worship Caesar for the church at Smyrna, to declare Jesus as Lord, not Caesar and Lord, Caesar as Lord, has some pretty dire consequences. We're going to read about those consequences in verse 9. Jesus says to the church, I know your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. More on that in a second. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. All right, so just pause there. Jesus says, 
Because of their refusal to worship Caesar instead of Jesus, the church in Smyrna is facing three painful realities. The first he calls tribulation. This word has uh, sort of the connotation of what you would do to an orange in a juice press. Like it's just this squeezing, this physical pain and suffering and agony. And so Jesus says, first, I know because you worship me and not Caesar, you are being physically crushed, physically in pain, physically afflicted. He would have had things in mind here like abandonment or arrest or torture or even being killed for the name of Jesus. Second thing he says is happening to the church is that they are in poverty. And this is not poverty like they can't afford a vacation they want to take or they have one less bedroom on their house than they want. This is poverty like they can't participate in the economy. All right, let me explain. So in that day, when you went to the temple to offer a sacrifice to the emperor, you would burn incense. And as a part of your ritual, you would hail Caesar is Lord. And on your way out, you would give a piece of the ash from what you just burned to the guard at the temple. And in exchange, they would give you a certificate that looks something like this one. And the certificate would say something to the effect of, we, the representatives of the emperor, so on and so forth, whatever their names were, have seen you sacrificing. And this certificate was a mark of entry into the Roman economy. If you did not have this certificate, you were seen as a traitor to the Roman Empire, and you could not participate in everyday commerce. And so because the church in Smyrna refuses to worship Caesar as Lord, they can't even function in everyday society. They can't apply for jobs. They can't get hired. They can't make a living. They can't even go into Harris Teeter to buy groceries. All right, That's the level at which they are cut off from participating in everyday common life. The third thing they're undergoing, he calls slander. Look back at verse 9. He says, And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right, let me just explain what verse 9 is referencing. See, so what happened is the Jewish people in Smyrna had enjoyed a large degree of freedom under the Roman Empire in the first century. They were actually exempt as a religious people group from emperor worship. And oftentimes they actually were included in full Roman citizenship. You see this in the example of Paul, right? Paul is trained as a religious leader in the Jewish society, and yet he is still a Roman citizen. In some places, what would happen is Christianity as kind of a subset would be folded up under that group of people. Because remember, Christianity started in the line of Judaism, right? The first Christians came as descendants of Abraham and Moses and David. The first Christian church on, in Acts 2 was made up of Jewish converts. Jesus was trained in the Jewish synagogue. The gospel, according to Paul, first comes to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But what has happened is the Romans are starting to look sideways at the Jews because they're starting to look sideways at the Christians. And they're like, hey, you guys have been going together, but these people aren't following in line with what they're asking them to do. Are you guys together or not? And these Jewish folks were like, no, we're not with them. And this would have been a large amount of betrayal and slander because they would have probably been related or lifelong friends with the people they're now throwing under the bus. So they would have grown up together in the Jewish synagogue. They would have walked together in the Jewish schools. And now these people are turning to Jesus and it's like, hey, Romans, are you looking for Christians? Are you trying to take out some Christians? Well, my neighbor, John, he's a Christian. You want to go like investigate his house? Oh, well, my brother Bartholomew, like he's worshiping Jesus. He's following the way now. You should go check him out. They're throwing the Christians under the bus. And Jesus says, because they are doing that, they are like a synagogue of Satan. Now, just to be really clear here, uh, first, or Revelation 2, 9 
has been used as one of the predominant passages for anti-Semitic beliefs throughout history. Like this is one of the primary proof texts that people will point to for some really evil, wicked beliefs about how Christians should hate and attack the Jewish population. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is not declaring once and for all that all parts of the Jewish population are therefore the synagogue of Satan. He is saying the Jews in Smyrna are doing the work of the enemy and how they are betraying and pushing against and abusing and going against Christians. There's a distinct difference there. We want Jews to come to faith in Christ. We want them to believe in the one true Messiah, but we do not look at scripture like this and go, therefore we hate them. It's not the invitation of Jesus. It's just worth mentioning as a side note. So here's what's going on in Revelation 2. Church in Smyrna, because of their faith in Jesus, they can't buy groceries. They can't find jobs. They're being betrayed by their family and friends and neighbors. They're living under constant threat of physical suffering and death. And Jesus does not offer them good news of immediate relief. All right, look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Now, let's be honest, if we were writing this, or if we were reading this, we would hope it said, do not fear because the suffering is about to end. Right? Like, let's just be honest. If we were like, sweet, a letter from Jesus, he knows our tribulation, he knows our poverty, he knows the slander that's happening to us, this is what he's going to say. Do not fear, suffering's going away. That's not what Jesus says. He says, do not fear, more sufferings to come. Do not fear what is about to happen to you. Because he says, what's going to happen, right? The devil is going to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, just to note, this is most likely not a literal 10 days. Numbers that show up in the book of Revelation are usually figurative. What he's trying to say here is that in comparison to eternity, the suffering you're about to go through is a relatively short period of time. Compared to what is awaiting you in glory, this is just going to be like 10 days. Compared to what Christ is going to do to make all things new again, this is like a week and a half at best. And yet, more suffering is coming to Smyrna, right? Real, tangible, painful suffering. Just to be clear, this is not suffering because they live as broken, fallen people in a broken, fallen world, right? That's the reality of all of our lives. All of us face suffering because we live in a world marked by sin. We live in a post-Genesis 3, sin has entered the world and corrupted all things, including us, suffering. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about suffering that happens because we're humans living on earth. He's talking about suffering the church at Smyrna is facing because they're willingly choosing to be faithful to Jesus and stand for him. This is suffering coming to the church because they're not bowing down to idols. They're not capitulating to the surrounding culture. They're not giving up. They're not giving in. Even under the threat of persecution and death, they are not going against the name of Christ. This experience of persecution is not unique to Smyrna. Persecution, torture, poverty, slandered, hatred, martyrdom, which means being killed for the faith. This was unfortunately commonplace reality for the early church in the first century world. If you were to track the history of Christianity from when Jesus ascends onward, starting in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, who's universally considered to be the first Christian martyr, you will just see on down the line, suffering, 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 suffering. 
Remember back to uh, the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, right? We talked about how the church had such a robust way to enter in. Like it was a years plus long process to be baptized and enter into the church. Part of why that was in the first century is because they knew, hey, if you enter into this thing, life is not going to go well for you on earth. Like if you enter into this thing, it's not riches and health for the rest of your days until you go to be with Jesus. You are signing up for suffering. You're signing up for pain. You're signing up for hurt. I'll say it this way. To say yes to Jesus in the ancient world was to say yes to suffering. It's what it meant. To say yes to Jesus in the first century, in the first several centuries, was to say yes to suffering. Church, that's not just true in the ancient world. That is true for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ today. This idea of being persecuted for the faith, having your life threatened, having your possessions stolen, being slandered by your family and close friends. This is not just a first century reality. This is true all across the world. And if I'm being honest, what I've been struggling with over the past week or two, thinking about this passage, is that it's just kind of hard to grasp as modern Western readers in Charlotte, North Carolina in 2023, right? Like to think about for a moment, what does it mean to suffer for our faith? Like for you to publicly announce you're a Christian in our culture today, right now, in this city at this time, comes with a pretty low price tag, right? Like, let's just be honest. Like you might experience some resistance. You might get some pushback. Someone might call you dumb. They might make fun of you at a party, but not full-blown persecution in Charlotte in 2023. It might make you a weirdo at a party. They're not going to throw you off the roof of the building in which the party is being held. Those are different things. But if you would publicly announce that you're a Christian in places like Pakistan or Somalia or Yemen, it comes with a much bigger price tag. It can cost you your business, your education, your reputation, your family, and even your life. For so many across the world today, to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to suffering. And I think this is something we can't just brush by really quickly. Like, I think we can't just say, yes, we're aware of that. Like, let's move forward. I think the invitation of the scriptures is this, Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. We talked about all during our summer series, right? We're part of a church local, but we're also part of a church global. And the global body of Christ crosses culture and time zones and oceans. And so even this morning, right at what, 1019, there's a clock over there in case you're wondering, 1019 a.m. on Sunday, July or September, whatever day it is, we're here in relative comfort and ease. Maybe it's a little warmer than you want it to be or a little colder than you want it to be. Your coffee's not as good as you want it to be and the chair's a little harder than you want it to be. It's relative ease and comfort. Even today, there are millions of Christians across the globe facing the very real threat of suffering and danger to their lives for their faith in Jesus. Every year, an organization called Open Doors releases what they call the World Watch List. It's the ranking of the 50 countries across the world where Christians face the most extreme, extreme persecution. Currently, according to their estimates, there are about 360 million Christians across the globe who face imminent threats of persecution. So persecution being hostility towards someone because of the name of Jesus. 360 million Christians. Number one on this list of countries is the country of North Korea. They've been number one for 20 of the last 21 years. The one year they lost the spot was the year that Afghanistan a few years ago had the regime turnover. 
Right now, it's estimated in North Korea, anywhere from 60 to 70,000 Christians living in the country are living in forced labor camps solely because they are followers of Jesus. Some of the others you can see on the list behind me include places like Iran and Sudan and Afghanistan, where Christians are being violently targeted for their faith. And this is not even to mention the hundreds of thousands of Christians who over the past decade have been forced to flee their homes in places like Syria and Turkey. If you've been watching the kind of large exodus that's been happening from those countries, a lot of those folks are Christians escaping persecution, knowing they'll never be able to return home. 360 million Christians today, today do not know if they will make it through the day solely because they're trying to be faithful to Jesus. This is not first century Christianity. This is not 8095 in Smyrna. This is 2023, a world we live in today, a world which in the last four decades, we have broken continual records every single year for the number of Christians who face violence for their faith. Where every month, September alone, it's estimated that 500 plus Christians will be killed for their faith in Jesus. That's 16 Christians a day losing their life for their faithfulness to him. A world in which every month 200 plus churches or Christian properties are destroyed, where 770 plus acts of violence are committed against Christ's followers. And here's the deal. It's easy to kind of hear numbers and just sort of like push it aside as something that doesn't really affect us, right? These are not just stats. These are not just numbers. These are people. And these are not just people. These are our people. Like this, this, Hebrews 13, this is our body. When those people are facing persecution in these places, very real threats of their lives for their faith, this is not just some abstract out there. These are our people. These are our brothers and sisters. These are the ones that we, Lord willing, will stand in eternity worshiping Jesus together with. These are our people. And according to Open Doors, if you were to ask them, what's the number one request from Christians in these parts of the world, more than our money or our sympathy is our prayers. Christians in the West would open our eyes, would see their suffering, would not be so bogged down by what we're doing today in this moment, that we would lift our eyes and our hearts in prayer to what's going on in Christians around the world. And so what I want to do is just heed that request, and I want us to spend a minute in prayer. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm just going to leave this list of, of countries up, and I'm going to invite us to just take a minute. I'm going to be silent, and I invite you to pray, and I invite you to pray out loud. It's helpful. Do You can pick a country out from this list. You can pick another country or maybe friends you know that are missionaries in these places or friends you know who are living in these places. And I'm just going to be quiet for a minute. I'm going to invite you to pray out loud with your real voice. If you're not a Christian, you can just sit there quietly while we do this. It's okay. It's not weird. I'm just going to invite us to pray for our brothers and sisters, the parts of the body in Christ that are facing these very real threats. To pray for their safety, to pray for their faithfulness to Christ. Let's just pause now, take a minute, and pray. Lord, we, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, these parts of your body that are hurting and in pain and in danger, Lord, we pray more than anything for their steadfast faithfulness to you. 
or that they will not fear those who can kill the body more than they fear those who, when you say, can destroy both body and soul in hell, Lord. And so I pray that they would have a godly awareness of your presence, a holy awareness of how near you are to them, how near you are to the brokenhearted, how near you are to those who are suffering. Well, they would know that you are building your church even in the midst of persecution. You are doing a mighty thing even in the midst of their suffering, Lord. And so I pray you would keep them faithful, that you would protect them, you would keep them, Lord, help them as they seek to be your hands and feet and your light in these places of darkness. We burden our hearts to continue to pray for them as our brothers and sisters. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this week in your groups, we're going to spend more time praying for the global church. If you want to read up on a few resources, uh, a couple websites to point you to, opendoors, you, opendoorsus.org, opendoorsus.org, and persecution.com. That's, that takes you to the Voice of the Martyrs, which tells the story of individuals who are facing a wide variety of persecution across the world. Opendoorsus.org, persecution.com. Again, we're going to spend time this week in our groups praying for the global church. All right, that's the big global application. Now I need to zoom in and talk about us. All right, so I'm not going to leave us hanging. What, what is there for us in Revelation 2, 8 through 11? How does this letter to Smyrna apply to me when I go to work on Tuesday? When I go get coffee with a friend on Thursday or run errands on Saturday, whatever the case may be. Here's, here's the question I think this letter leads us to that I just want to spend a few minutes sensitively and openly asking the Holy Spirit to confront us with, and that's this. Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus? Now, it's, it's easy on the surface to rush to the Christian answer, right? Like, of course I am. I'm, I'm ready to die today. Like, bring it on. Let's do it. I'm here. Let's go. But let me just ask you, is that true? Is that, is that true? Does, does your track record show your willingness to suffer to identify with Christ? Just consider a few of these everyday scenarios. How, how do you respond to some of these things you might face in your everyday life? Maybe not all of them, but a few. Your coworker asks you on Monday morning, what'd you do this weekend? You tell them about Friday, Saturday, Sunday afternoon. You tell them you went to church. You tell them you worshiped Jesus. You tell them that you're a Christian, even though last week you just heard them make jokes about Christians and how weird they were and how lame they were, and you know it's about to make... The relationship really weird, if not tense. Maybe you have a meeting on Wednesday and your boss asks you, hey, I need you to backdate some things to August. Like our production was low that month and I know we've had a good first couple of weeks of September. And I need you to make this report look a little bit better to the higher ups. And so if you could just fudge a few of the numbers, you say yes, you want him to trust you, think highly of you, or do you say no and not compromise your integrity even though it might derail that relationship in the future. You have a close Christian friend, a close Christian family member. They're actively rebelling against the Lord. They're actively choosing what they would even admit to be sin in their everyday life. Do you say something? Even if you know they're 100% going to take this the wrong way. Like they are, there's no way to have this conversation and not have them call me judgmental. There's no way this is not going to hurt the friendship moving forward. Do you, do you say something? Maybe your community group member has a medical crisis. They, they need financial help. You step in, you try to meet that need, even though you're already kind of feeling tight as it is, and you might have to give up a few things that you want that month. And, you know, you've been saving up for that vacation a really, really long time. 
You might not be able to take it anymore. Church, I think here's what we need out of this letter to Smyrna. We need it to warn us and to challenge us. Be faithful unto death, not because we may face death, but because all of us face life. We need this letter to Smyrna. We need the testimony of the martyrs throughout church history. We need the faithfulness amidst persecution of our brothers and sisters across the world because all of it points us not just to how to die well, but how to live well. Like that's the invitation. As we think about the persecuted church, we think about the letter to Smyrna and Revelation 2, the invitation is that we would be spurred on by their faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit to be faithful in life. To say, okay, yes, that death may come, but right now, am I faithful in the everyday suffering that I face on Tuesday and on Thursday and on Friday? That we would see the sacrifice of our brothers and sisters. We would see the invitation of Jesus be faithful unto death. We would say, even if it costs us, even when it costs us, I'm going to be faithful. Because, and here's what you have to understand, saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to suffering for all of us. Like, if you want the Jesus thing, suffering's going to come. If you're, if you're actually living into this, how he calls you to live into it, suffering and death are going to come in some way, shape, or form. After all, if it wasn't true, why would Jesus say this to his followers in Matthew 16? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, if you want to follow me, the cost is everything. Death to yourself, yes. But part of what death to ourselves means is death to the protection that we want to buffer ourselves around towards suffering. You see, many of us and many preachers want to take Revelation chapter 2 and they want to make it about a future warning. Like I listen to so many sermons on Revelation 2, just asking the question, is somebody going to apply it to right now? And every single one, this is not a knock, a lot of them were very biblically faithful, but the way they applied it was this. Look at the trajectory of America. This is what's coming. Be ready. Persecution's coming. Suffering's coming. The culture's going this way. They're going to throw us in prison. They're going to burn down our churches. Joke's on us. We don't have a building. Ha ha. They're going to ostracize us from the community, and you may even face death, whatever the case may be. Now, do I think, I get this question a ton, do I think the trajectory of America is towards physical persecution, suffering, imprisonment, being murdered for our faith, things like that? Hard maybe. I'm going to be you, probably not. Like, if you're going to ask, like, my personal opinion, pastoral opinion aside, my personal opinion is, like, maybe it tends to kind of traject that way, and then oftentimes the Spirit does a deep revival and things change. I don't know if that's the direction we're headed. Could be wrong. Who knows? Here's what I do know. Here's what I do know, and here's what we need to sit in for a minute. It is a dangerous deception to think we would be willing to die for Christ tomorrow when we're not willing to live for him today. So is future persecution going to come? Maybe. But is there opportunities today for you to be faithful and experience lesser amounts of suffering for the name of Jesus? Yes, absolutely, and amen. It's dangerous deception to think we would be willing to die in some future may or may not happen reality when we're unwilling to live in the present reality Christ has given us today. I'll say it even more strongly. It is a deception of the enemy. It's a lie of the devil himself to think we'd have the courage to be stoned like Stephen, or beaten to death like Timothy, when right now we're too afraid to tell our coworker about Jesus because they might not invite us to lunch. 
It is a deception of the enemy. It's a lie of the enemy of God to our souls to think we'd be steadfast to follow Christ under the threat of being crucified like Peter or thrown off the temple like James when right now we can't drive 30 minutes to community group once a week because it's too much of a burden. So let, church, let this letter be a right now gut check question. Am I willing to suffer for Jesus? Like, am I willing to do the hard work of getting off the couch? I had asked myself that question last night. We had a, a cookout in the neighborhood last night, a little potluck shindig block party thing. And I know we're trying to build with some of our neighbors. We're trying to introduce them to Jesus. We're trying to, to love them and serve them and get them interested in the things of Christ. And there are a lot of good college football games on. Ah, I got to preach tomorrow. This is, this is me. Like, am I willing? Because I can read Revelation 2 all day long and be like, yes, do not fear. Be faithful unto death. I am ready, Lord. But am I willing to do the little stuff like serve my wife? Sacrifice for my kids? What's that famous, I don't know who they attribute it to anymore. It's just kind of around. What's that famous quote of everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to wash the dishes? Everybody wants to die for Christ, but nobody wants to read their Bibles. Nobody wants to show up when somebody in their group is in need. So church, are we, are we willing to be like the saints in Smyrna, even if to a lesser degree, right? Even if, even if it costs us relationally, like it's awkward and we're misunderstood and someone says we're dumb and they disagree with us and they post all about us and how backwards we are in our thinking online, et cetera, et cetera. Are we, are we willing to face the cost? Even if it costs us financially, like to reorient your life around sacrifices for the kingdom of God is going to cost you. If you're really following this Jesus thing, your standard of living is going to be different than the neighbor next door. We're willing to face that. The personal cost where we deny ourselves comforts to serve and to sacrifice, does, does the consideration that we should suffer at all even cross our minds? And again, not suffering because we live as broken people in a broken, fallen world. That's going to come. I mean, suffering because we willingly choose to be faithful to Jesus. Does that even cross our minds or our lives so ingrained in our secular culture to always pursue the path of least resistance? So the question we have to wrestle with is, are, are you willing to suffer for Jesus? I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what the Spirit's inviting you into this coming week, but what does that mean? Because what's true about the church in history is still true today. To say yes to Jesus is to say yes to suffering. If we're following it, him rightly, we're living into pure discipleship, what he calls us to, it's going to come with a price tag. And if it's, it's worth asking ourselves, what is our life like if it hasn't? And if it doesn't? All right, I, I cannot leave us there. That's the challenge of the passage, all right? But if you stop there, like if I just was like, all right, let's pray, band come up, let's sing, let's take communion. We said this week one, burden right? Hey, be more faithful, as if that's not the difficult challenge of our souls every single day. Hey, be willing to suffer for Christ, as if all of the alarm bells are not going off within us to self-persevere, right? Like, this is life. This is what it means to be a human. And so what we need is not just the challenge of Revelation 2, we also need the comfort. And so what I want to do is I just, I want to walk back through the passage real, real quickly. And what I want to show us is that there's two threads, so there's one thread of the passage that's suffering, poverty, tribulation, slander, death, but there's this other beautiful, beautiful thread as well. Look at it with me, verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. 
Jesus starts by saying, remember that I've defeated death. Be faithful unto death because I've risen again. I've defeated it. He says in in Revelation chapter one, he holds the keys of death and Hades. He rules and reigns as the one who has come first and the one who has no eternity end. He is the one who reigns over death so we can be faithful to death. Verse nine, he says, I know your tribulation. I mean, how much comfort is there to know God knows us? That when we're facing suffering, when we're facing pain, when we're facing hardship for his name, he does not stand back aloof. He doesn't stand back like whatever, no big deal. He is a great high priest able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, sympathize with us both in our suffering when we're faithful and in our inability to be faithful. He's there in the midst of our weakness. He keeps going. And your poverty, but you are rich. Even in poverty, even in prison, even in tribulation, even in death, he says the church in Smyrna is rich. It's this kind of subtext that's happening in Matthew chapter 5, right? The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor, for they will inherit the earth. Or Paul in Romans 8, if you're a child of God, you are heirs with Christ, meaning the sufferings you are facing are not worth comparing with the glory that is to come. You're rich because we have a rich inheritance in Christ Jesus. Or verse 10, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. It's the same idea from James chapter one, where James tells the church, God is testing your faith. He's not causing you to go into prison. Jesus is clear, the devil's putting you in prison, but I'm using it as a test to produce something within you. So James says in James one, the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, which leads to maturity. So Jesus says, do you want to be more like me? Which again, should be the heart cry of all of us who follow him. Jesus says, do you want to look more like me? It's going to come through trial. But I'm doing that in you. These tests are not in vain. This trial is not in vain. I'm shaping you into something. Verse 10, it just keeps getting better. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 10 days of suffering. That's it. An eternity to come with Jesus, with the crown of life, the crown of everlasting life. Jesus says the promise is that though you may face tribulation now, if you are faithful, you're going to live in a world in the future, in eternity with God, where there is no more tribulation. Though you may face poverty for your faith now, you're going to live in a world in the future where you have the crown. You may face slander now, but you're going to live in a world in the future where you're going to be surrounded by others. And every word that comes out of your mouth and theirs is no longer slander or gossip, but celebration of King Jesus. That's our future. And then the greatest news I think of all is verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So pointing forward to Revelation 20, verse 14, Jesus talks about the lake of fire. That all of us, all humanity faces a first death, But those who do not trust in Jesus, who do not walk with him, who do not put their faith in Christ, face what is known as the second death. They are thrown into the lake of fire with God's enemy to face suffering and separation from God forever. Jesus says, that's not your future. Though you may face the first death because of your faithfulness to me, following the first death comes an everlasting life. In other words, look, this is what he's trying to say. He's like, "Be, be faithful to me. Be willing to suffer for Jesus. Why? Because he reigns over suffering. He knows your pain that you face for him. He's using it to make you more like him. You're set to inherit a kingdom and a crown and you will live forever with God. So when we're nervous and we're apprehensive, I'm nervous about talking to my coworker about Jesus. Remember, he reigns over suffering. 
He knows your pain you face for him. He's using it to make you more like him. You're set to inherit a kingdom and a crown, and you will live forever with God. Everything in me does not want to engage with my kid right now. I just want to sit on the couch, and this feels like sacrifice to step in faithfully to parenting. Remember, he reigns over suffering. He knows your pain you face for him. He's using it to make you more like him. You're set to inherit a kingdom and a crown, and you will live forever with God. I mean, go on down the list. Whatever suffering you are afraid to step into, the invitation from Christ is the same. And this is that, Hebrews 12. Consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church, here's the good news of the gospel that we see in Revelation chapter 2, that the one who calls us to suffer for him first suffered for us. The one who calls us be faithful unto death was first the one who was faithful unto death. And the one who calls us to take up our cross is first the one who took up his cross. And so he invites us to walk the path he walked. First as the one who walked the path for us to make us right with God, to welcome us into his kingdom. And now the invitation is not be faithful unto death, lest you might not have your salvation, lest you might get denied. He says, no, be faithful unto death because he is the one who first died and came to life. That's the good news. That's the promise. That's the invitation that every time we step into a willingness to suffer because of faithfulness to Jesus, we go after Christ who suffered first, with Christ who comes with us, and secure in Christ who holds us together. Here's where I want to close this with a story about one of my favorite people in church history. So approximately 60 years or so after John writes this letter to the church at Smyrna, there, there was a man who would believe the letter. He would not be afraid of what he was about to suffer, and he would be faithful to death. He was actually the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he was a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp had been a disciple of John. He had learned how to follow Jesus from John himself. He was greatly loved and respected by the church, and yet one day his time on earth had come to an end. And so he, the soldiers had come. They'd come to Polycarp's house to arrest him. The Roman proconsul wanted him dead for preaching Jesus and, and following Jesus and being faithful to Jesus. And so the men show up to his house and they're like, Polycarp, it's, it's time for you to go to the arena to be killed. This is, this is it for you. And, and he says, all right, but can I just have one hour to pray? And the men are so shocked. They're like, we just told you it's time to die. And he's like, can I just have one hour? One hour to pray. And they're like, we'll give you two. This is faith. This is faith. And so while he goes up in his upper room to pray, he actually has food brought out for the men who have come to arrest him. And so they're eating and he's praying over the course of these two hours. And his continual prayer, we find out that you can actually hear from downstairs is this, God, your will be done. He just says this for, for two hours. Lord, your will be done. Give me courage and your will be done. Give me courage and your will be done. So they eventually take him out of his house, lead him into the, the stadium. As he's walking into the stadium. Several Christian historians say you can hear this voice from heaven speaking down over Polycarp and those around him. Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. Because of his age, the Roman proconsul wanted to take pity on him, and so he gave Polycarp another chance. You, you, can, you can turn from this. You don't have to die for your faith. You can, you can walk away from this today. You can go back home, live out the rest of your years in silence, all you have to do is point to the Christians and say, take away the atheists. Now, at that time, the Romans believed Christians were the atheists because they didn't worship their Roman gods. And so they thought Christians were atheists. And so he said, Polycarp, just look at the other Christians next to you on the stake and say, take away the atheists and you can go back home. And Polycarp, in, in a kind of uh, way that you can only do, I think, at his age, instead turns to the Roman crowd and says, take away the atheists. 
the Roman proconsul's like, I really don't want to do it again. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, let me just give you one more shot. Just will you please swear by Caesar, renounce Jesus. Like, you, like please, I want to spare your life. And as he faced the fires of death, Polycarp declared to the crowd his, his famous saying. Maybe you've heard it before. He said this. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me. And the crowd pressed in on him as the fires started up his stake. Polycarp offered one final prayer. Because of this and for all things, I praise you, O Lord God Almighty. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for ages to come. Amen. 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. Church, I love that story because we, most of us, will probably not face a polycarp death, but we can all live a polycarp life. We can all give our 86 years or plus or minus however the Lord gives you to say, I'm going to be faithful to him because he does me no wrong. And that's the invitation of Revelation chapter 2, that that one day, for all who are faithful to him, even in the midst of suffering, he promises the crown of life because he's never done us wrong and he never will. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. And even with a frailing love, you see our offerings. You honor our desire to live for you, our desire to sacrifice for you, our desire to walk with you, even if it costs us, Lord. And so I just pray that you would give us faithfulness, steadfastness, Lord. That we would be faithful. Yes, unto death, if that moment ever comes for us, where we might be killed for our faith in you, but in every moment of life up until then, Lord, would you give us faithfulness? We would see the story of Smyrna, we would see the the lessons of the martyrs, we would see the sufferings of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, and we would be urged on to faithfulness. But most of all, not because we see their stories, but because we see the story of Christ. We would be gripped by everything we talked about last week, gripped by love for you, gripped by your love for us, that out of your love for us, we would be utterly changed and ready to give everything away, to take up our cross and follow you, regardless of small or big sacrifices you might call us to, Lord. So I pray today for those of us in the room who know, even right now, the offerings of sacrifice you've been calling us to. Maybe it's forgiveness we're withholding from a friend, family member, a spouse. Forgiveness feels costly, it feels painful, and yet you're calling us to be faithful to you with sacrifice. For those of us in the room who know that relationship that you've been calling us to invest in, but we're afraid, we're scared, we're nervous of what they might think about us, Lord, and yet we know your invitation because of Christ is to step in to the sacrifice. But for those of us who know this week ways you've called us to serve someone else, and we've excused it, we've justified it, we've said no, we've pushed it to the side. Lord, I pray that we would, because of Christ, step into the sacrifice. 
me just give us a moment. What, what, is, what is the step of faithfulness Christ is inviting you into today? Give us a moment to just sit in the silence, to, to ask the Holy Spirit, am I willing to suffer for the name of Jesus?